Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kalki. Today, I am genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Todd Capone. He is a transparency nerd, but also a bit of a sales nerd, if I can uh, be perfectly honest. He's a sales historian. He's sad like me in so many ways. Todd, welcome. Thank you for having me. I can't wait. Excellent. So could you give the audience 60 seconds on your background, rattle through it, and then we'll get stuck into the really uncomfortable stuff? Yeah, um, I was a, uh, I was always a, a kind of a B plus B uh, sales rep, but I always knew that sales leadership and coaching and teaching was my passion. And then after uh, selling everything I had and buying a sales training company that I ran into the ground, I popped out of that. I've been a uh, seven-time sales leader. Uh, and a couple of years ago, and I know we're going to talk about this, I got this crazy idea about what the future of sales looks like. I got three publishing offers, ended up writing a book called The Transparency Sale that I was sure would suck because I've never written a book before. And it has somehow won three awards and uh, made the bestseller list a couple of times. And so now I speak, teach, and uh, do a little bit of advisory. Excellent. Thank you. So Mark Twain, I believe, said, always tell the truth. It confounds your enemies and surprises your friends. And today's conversation is really about why transparency is essential in all salespeople, but I think in all business interactions as well. So often people have a blind spot towards it. Why do you think that is? Well, here, the data tells us that transparency sells better than perfection, right? Uh, that there's this company that you may have heard of. It's called Amazon. They're doing pretty well. And they were the ones in 1995 that started putting negative reviews right next to their own products on their own website. And somehow that aided in the purchase likelihood of the products they were selling. The behavioral science tells us that transparency sells better than perfection. It's how our brains are wired. 82% of us go to the negative reviews first when we're reading something online. And that same behavior absolutely equates to B2B or human to human selling. And then the practical application tells us that transparency sells better than perfection. When we lead with our flaws, we build trust, we speed sales cycles, we increase win rates, and we qualify in or out deals a lot faster. Yet, to your question, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. I was going to ask you, in the B2B space, can you give statistics to validate those statements? Because they're, you know, they're a big claim. I believe them but it would be helpful to have stats to back it up. Well, yeah. So in uh, 2017, so three years ago, Gartner issued a study that looked at the consensus purchase process and said, consensus buyers, where do they spend their time? And it turns out that they only spend 39% of their time talking to you, talking to your competitors, or talking to their internal buying groups. Turns out that 61% of their time is doing other stuff. And that other stuff, is back-channeling you because they're not getting the information that they need from you. They're checking references. They're talking to analysts. They're going online. If you're in the tech space, they're going to the G2.coms and the trust radiuses. They're actually reading Glassdoor reviews. They're back-channeling you because they are not getting the comfort level that their brain requires to trigger a decision where they know that the juice is going to be worth the squeeze. Now, when we do the homework for the buyer, what ends up happening is that 61% is not a foregone conclusion. And when you're able to provide the information that the brain requires to trigger a decision, 
that 61% shrinks. And as a result, your sales cycles do. And when we started trying this, uh, the first couple of times was kind of like a Hail Mary. And one deal I was working on the first time I tried it, the company was planning to issue an RFP. And then they were planning to have us come up and do the big dog and pony show at their offices in New York. And by leading with transparency and telling them, hey, here's what the competitor does better than us. Here's something they released that's not even on our roadmap. And if that's going to be important to you, like, let's bet that now. They ended up throwing out the RFP process, not having us come up and made a decision in 10 days. So we see that over and over again, that that 61% that Gartner talks about is only because salespeople are not embracing their job, their role, which is to aid the buyer in making a smart decision. So let's, uh, I want to build on this because certainly that's been my experience. I always lead with a couple of objections up front that may be deal breakers because I want to know that on the first conversation. I don't want to wait nine months and 17 touches and have incurred 45 grand's worth of cost. Uh, That's just stupid. And God knows there are a lot of stupid people in management who insist that we shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't expose that stuff. But there is a really simple fundamental rule about humanity. While I may forgive your lie, I will never forget it, which means the minute I've caught you in a lie, or I think I've caught you in a lie, I will never trust another thing that comes out of your mouth. So one of my favorite questions in interview is when is it okay to lie to a prospect? And there is only one answer, and it can only be delivered in one way, which is immediately they have to say never. Anything other than that causes a monstrous red flag. But I want to dig deep into that. Why is it so many salespeople are encouraged by their managers to withhold information, to lie, to be economical with the truth, or to exaggerate? Number one, you said it at the beginning, and it's crappy leadership and some old school thoughts around metrics. And here's the one that I did wrong. When I first moved into my first VP of sales job, like I viewed sales leadership as caveman, like, right? Like the me field pipeline, me pipeline, right? And it was like, that was it, but that's, that's stupid. To your point, here's the one metric that you've probably heard through your career is, hey, reps, at any time, you always have to have three to four X your quota in pipeline because you're only going to close 25% of it. And if you don't have enough pipeline load, you're never going to hit your targets. That's stupid to me. And here's why. If we start measuring to the 4X quota, guess what? Your reps will suddenly have 4X of their quota in pipeline, three-fourths of which we already know they're not going to close. And probably half of that three-fourths are things that were only in there because the manager's going to look at my pipeline and say, you don't have enough. So but like, that's number one, is we've got to stop measuring to old school metrics that lead you to be average, where you're causing your reps to spend time on opportunities that they know they're not even going to win. They just throw it in the pipeline and keep working it. My belief, in my last role as a CRO, we started practicing in it and we started seeing this, was that your win rates go up, right? That for you to be effective and use your time in the most efficient manner possible, when we lead, like you said, with the objections. What's the elephant in the room? What are the things that if I was sitting in your shoes, I might not like about you or your company? Lead with those, vet them out. You'll find that you only need 2x your quota and pipeline. You're qualifying out deals faster, meaning you're losing faster. And as a result, you're spending that extra time prospecting into opportunities. You've got a better opportunity to win. 
So we got to get out of like any of your, the leaders that are listening that are still managing to the three to four X quota and pipeline. Stop it. We've got to start thinking differently about that. And I, I agree with you in principle. I definitely recommend that we go for three to five X at the qualified moving to closable stage, but for a very different reason. And let me build on that. There are four metrics that I've found work an absolute dream. And routinely, my clients come in or have come in when I was with Sandler at well above quota and often three or 400%. And the first one is daily unique effective conversations. So this is where you actually speak to a living, breathing human being who is in your target market. You make it past the gatekeeper and you contract that at the end of that conversation, one of two outcomes will happen. They'll tell you to go and boil your head and you're part of amicable terms or you'll advance the conversation to the next stage, which is a meeting. The second thing is pipeline velocity. What I hate is a pipeline that looks like a pair of old granny knickers, and it's white at the top, baggy in the middle, and saggy, and yeah, full of rubbish <laughs> in the basket. And what it should look like is a thong. So it's white at the top, and you're disqualifying, and anything that makes it through to the bottom third is qualified and they're the, they are in your ideal customer profile. They have, you're speaking to a decision maker uh, who is both able and willing to make the decision, able and willing to invest the time, the money, the resource, give you access so you can qualify, and working towards a clearly defined timetable. Now, that is a prospect, and that would only go into forecast at 10% weighting. Now, for most people, that is a done deal. It's anything but. It's still just barely a prospect. Then we move to the qualified stage. And the qualified stage meets those five criteria. And they have uh, answered at least 70% of the questions that you need answered. And at that qualified stage, moving to closable, I want three to five times what you need for the simple reason that I want you to have choice. I believe you prospect for choice. And if you've got three to five, you can turn away any business. Anyone who wants you to do a fireside sale or is waiting for the end of the quarter in the hope of a discount, you can just say, you know, Todd, not a problem, we can wait. And this is a really interesting metric that I just started to really focus on this year, which is the conversion rate of first qualified meeting to second qualified meeting. Because I see seven out of eight on average, first meetings do not result in a second. Because salespeople don't ask for uh, the next step. So they leave uh, and then they spend 80% of their career chasing. They've got in front of the wrong people and they burn through those leads. And then they complain that it's marketing's fault or it's the product's fault or it's the economy. What a pile of horseshit. Those four metrics together, but again, with that uh, mindset that you're not trying to fill the pipeline with crap, what you're filling it with is quality. So then you have the choice. So, I mean, your thoughts on that? No, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the more pipeline you have, the more choice you have. Absolutely. One of the things that I think we need to think about is the structure of traditional compensation plans. Because, you know, I mean, if, if you were, I mean, if you were to balance that philosophy around choice with the traditional accelerators and compensation plans, it creates a conflict. And you're still getting reps that are trying to jam in deals and they're discounting. Like, I, I mean, I, this sweater that I'm wearing is from Banana Republic. Every Sunday, I get an email from Banana Republic that says, 40% off today and tomorrow only. 
And then Monday comes around and I get another one that's like, you've got five hours, you better, like, you're going to miss this one to the lifetime chance. I don't do it. And then next Sunday, I get one that says, friends and family discount this week, 50% off. And I'm like, wait, that, that was actually better. You're, you're right. The one from last week went away. This one's even better. And what the point I'm getting at is don't be a banana Republic Sunday email, right? That we're discounting in the form of charity to the customer's bottom line and creating fake urgency. Part of that fake urgency is because a rep, when they discount, loses a very small amount. A company loses a big amount, but that rep is making up for it in accelerators because of the way traditional compensation plans are structured. But your point is really well taken. I I love the way you're thinking about that. Let's look at compensation because, again, I'm just in the throes of developing comp plans for my new clients. And it's really interesting because I've learned from Microsoft, the way they compensate their partners is they pay them a little for winning a deal. They pay them a lot for getting high level of utilization. They get a lot for renewal. They get a lot for expansion. And that's where we should be focused. Because when I went through the hiring process in the last month, what we've realized is we do not want reps who are focused on this month or this quarter's target. We want reps who are prospecting for customers who are going to be the customer in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time. So we want lifetime customers. What we don't want are people who are just going to try and game the system. Um, And the compensation scheme drives wrong behavior. And it's uh, the unintended consequence. Alfie Cohn, I don't know if you read his uh, fabulous book, Punished by Rewards and uh, looks at how what happens is when you have competitions and uh, where you even give kids gold stars, uh, you actually reduce productivity and commitment because now it's it's work instead of play. And you you look at Carol Dweck, her piece around compensating uh, students by telling them, you know, this is uh, really important, this is hard work versus finding uh, children who have a growth mindset. And so what I'm really interested in is the type of compensation schemes that drive the desired behavior, discretionary effort, and a real emphasis on the customer. Have you got any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, you know, we keep going back to this idea of poor leadership is what ails a lot of what happens in these sales organizations. The one Thing that I often say is that sales reps are coin operated if you're doing it wrong. That if you create the right environment where reps are intrinsically motivated, meaning they're finding motivation from within, and then they're rewarded in the form of variable compensation for doing the things that they're intrinsically motivated, that's where you get the highest engagement, the lowest turnover, and the, the best results, right? So that comes from leadership. And Again, if I said, Marcus, like, I want you to go into my backyard and, and dig some holes, you'd be like, screw off. Like, well, I'll pay a hundred bucks a hole. And then you'd say, well, where's the shovel, right? And then you do the absolute minimum to get that hundred bucks. And then you'd move on to the next one. We need to create environments where reps are intrinsically motivated. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the baseline to stop thinking about compensation as the coin operated mechanism to get reps to do the behaviors that you want. I'll tell you, there's one other, this book is a a small one. It's um, from Dan Ariely. It's called Payoff. There was a research study in it that kind of blew my mind. 
and I'll share it with you and you can riff on this for a second. When you talked about, like, we don't want reps that are month-oriented or quarter-oriented or even year-oriented. We want them customer outcome-oriented. They had done, he had done a study where I equated this to this idea that at the end of every year, what do we do? We reset the meter on the reps, right? So December 31st, they hit their quota. January 1st, they're like, hey, congratulations on a great year. You're back at zero. What that actually creates is disengagement in your selling organization. And I've been trying to think through how we fix that. Dan talks about this study that was done where people were brought in and they were asked to build a Lego model and they were paid a dollar amount to build that Lego model. And then he would take it away, put it behind them on the shelf so they could still see it and say, here, build this one for a little less money and see how many they would build before they'd give up and all these models would be stacked up behind them. The second group, he did the same thing, but as he had them build the second, third, fourth model, he's disassembling the ones that they've already built and put them into a box and then having them reassemble it. And what happened was those individuals were only wanting to create two or three for the same dollar amount as the other people who could actually see what they created. And so I think that just yells that the sales tradition around let's start everybody back at zero is creating disengagement and getting reps less intrinsically motivated. I think there's got to be ways to do what Microsoft did on a more pervasive basis and look for ways to allow reps to see what they've built and continue to take part in that because I believe that that will lower turnover and increase engagement, which in the end has a huge result on results. Well, this this is a whole great can of worms. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that whole concept of the uh, set, uh, reset to zero uh, being disincentivizing and um, disengaging, I think is brilliant. So I'll definitely be stealing that. Um, <laughs> the, the next thing is we need to look at an individual's genuine motivation in the recruitment process. And uh, in the recruitment process we've just run, looking at beliefs and values, which are what comprise motivation, interestingly enough. And then profiling, we used something called the motivational map, which was very illuminating because what it helped us to understand was the uh, intrinsic motivations of the individual salespeople that we were uh, interviewing. And off the back of that, we were then able to understand what was it that drives their behavior but also how to create variable compensation that feeds those motivations and also variable recognition because some people are looking for security. Others are looking for belonging or recognition, whilst there's a whole bunch of other people who are looking for control and power, money, knowledge and mastery, and yet more who are looking for freedom and uh, innovation and meaning. And so in terms of being able to coach, because especially where you don't have a lot of money, being able to pinpoint exactly what drives another human being. And I work with um, a company, a Gap in the Matrix. And what's really fascinating about their work is that you've got all of this um, information that psychologists are doing and analysts and statisticians and marketing and revenue and all of these different people. And so you've got all these different theories. But what that tells us is that where you have all these different theories, 
trying to solve the same problem, there is a big gap and none of them really understand it. Big data, enterprise data platforms, CRM, market research, advertising, communication, creativity, attribution, sentiment, statistics, relevance, all of this stuff are what companies are spending an obscene amount and none of them are getting the full picture. And these guys are a bunch of mathematical psychologists that have created an entirely new branch of mathematics called irrational mathematics. So your views of the world seem rational to you, but balmy to me, uh, and vice versa. But given that we can then track and measure and identify precisely what drives that behavior and those beliefs, we can then build an algorithm around it. And that's what these guys have done. It's really exciting work because I brought them into a couple of my clients and the insights are just breathtaking. And it saved us probably four or five years worth of guesswork. And it's already shortening sales cycles. So really very interesting. But to come back to this, I think part of the problem is that we recruit badly. And I don't think there is uh, transparency and honesty in the recruitment process. Uh, One of my favorite jokes is what do you call a conversation between two adults where both are lying through their teeth? A job interview. (laughs) How can we build more transparency and honesty into the recruitment process so that we start out on the right foot? Well, I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you a story, but I just, for everybody's realization, if you go and to Google, and let's say I'm going to go interview at Microsoft or at Salesforce or whatever company, and I just type into Google, like, what's it like to work at those companies? Guess what? The first five results are not going to be Microsoft.com or Salesforce.com. It's going to be Glassdoor, Indeed, like all of these review sites where current and former employees are able to share what their experiences have been like. So I think the first thing that everybody needs to open their eyes to is transparency interviews better than perfection, but we have to do it anyway because of the ease at which candidates and customers have access to the truth. So let's just start there first. Second, though, is just like in the sales environment, transparency begets transparency. When when you're transparent, the person that you're talking to can't help but become transparent. I had a, uh, a rep a couple of months ago just randomly reach out to me on LinkedIn asking for my advice. And it was odd because I had been just thinking about this, but he said, listen, I'm going in for a second interview to a company. It's going to be a Zoom style panel interview. So there's, I'm going to be interviewing yeah. with five people. I'm one of the finalists. I, I believe there's three or four others. The thing that jumped out to me though was on the requirements, it said that I needed to have five years of enterprise SaaS technology sales experience, and I have none. How should I handle that? And so I told them, start the conversation with it. Like, like we talked about before, throw that objection at the beginning. He's like, what are you, crazy? I'm like, no, here's how you do it. Walk in and say, hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. There's a reason I'm here. But before we get too deep into this, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is this five-year requirement. And as you can see from my resume and our conversations, I don't have that. If that's going to be really important, can, can we talk through that right now? So I talked him through how to do it and all that. He called me two days later and he was just like, I'm holding the offer. Like, I got it. I beat these other reps that didn't have that or that, that actually had that experience. 
And he could tell from just the whole vibe of the meeting that when you lead with, hey, here's something that I don't have on my resume that I think you might want. When you lead with that, again, our buying brains all work the same way. That'll be hugely disarming and it works the other way too. If there's something about your work environment that maybe they're not going to like or doesn't fit everybody, lead with it. And you're going to end up with a better connection just like you do in um, customers. I'll tell you one other, can I go on one other quick rant? Of course. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm. this will tie back. So hang with me for a second. I was on LinkedIn maybe a month ago and there was an article that talked about customer experience is the new that's what you need to focus on as a company. If you're not creating legendary customer experiences, you're going to lose. So I read that article. I then was like, oh, that's interesting. There's a couple interesting data points. I did a little research and I found five articles saying the exact same thing. So with that fresh in my mind, and, and you guys, you've got uh, Costco's and Best Buy's around, right? I know what they are, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Costco. Um, my, my stepdaughter was having a birthday party coming up that Saturday. And so as soon as I read all this stuff, fresh in my mind, she's like, hey, could you go get a vegetable tray and then go buy some ranch dressing? Like, she loves ranch. I go to Costco, and Costco here is it's a big warehouse store. Yeah. You walk in, I, I find the ranch dressing, and you can't buy a little ranch dressing. You, you got to buy... Yeah, you, you got to buy, buy a freaking... Like, a full freaking you know, leader, like, like some tank of it. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's not really, then I turn around. If I want one toothbrush, I can't have it. They're going to sell me 10. I fill my cart. They throw the stuff on the conveyor belt. Then they throw the stuff in my cart. And then as I'm walking out, there's a woman by the door that checks your receipt against what you bought to make sure you didn't steal anything. And I'm yeah. like, gosh, that's, that's not a legendary experience, but Costco's the number four retailer in the U S I then go to Ikea and I'm yeah. buying a little bit of furniture for our basement. Ikea is even worse. And I, I get home, I turn on Seinfeld. And I don't know if you remember that the soup Nazi episode of Seinfeld, where there's this guy who yells at everybody, but people are lined up down the street. My point being, as I did the research on this, that the key to everything, to customers that buy faster, that stay and tell their friends, the same goes for recruiting, is that when we set accurate expectations. Set accurate expectations and meet them. It is the key to everything. Transparency, honesty, authenticity. Set accurate expectations. It's actually obviously better than over uh, committing and under delivering, but it's also better than under committing and over delivering. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but so often we're just like, hey, let's wow our customers by creating low expectations and then meeting them. That's actually a form of lying it creates a short-term spike in satisfaction, but long-term, it creates what I call expectation inflation, and you can't keep up with that. So when you're interviewing, you're going into an interview, you're selling, you're buying, transparency and expectation setting is the key to having customers that buy faster, stay longer, and tell their friends. We cannot overcome our evolutionary programming. Right. And the, the, this is where I think so much marketing is utterly wasted. Yes. Uh, and management theory is complete crap. We are social primates. We have a brain that has evolved to keep our ancestors alive long enough to breed. So eventually we could come onto the planet. And uh, we have an innate bullshit detector that starts in our gut because if you uh, read Bruce Lipton's work, 
around uh, the evolution of the brain. It's, you know, the brain started in the gut and then evolved. And then we got the reptilian brain. Then we got the mammalian brain. Then we got the neocortex. But that's why we have a gut feel. And you get reflected back what you project out. Far too often, people are trying to pull the wool over other people's eyes. Uh, other times they are trying to present this facade. And your bullshit detector sniffs it out and something isn't quite right. And if something isn't quite right, that's where you get the think it over. That's where you get the mismatched expectation. That's where you get people resisting and that's where you encourage. I mean, one of the lessons that I learned over the last 17 years is that prospects only object because salespeople take them there. When you finally realize that and you just get ahead, you know, David Sandler always said, you know, if you're going to fight, fight up front. So raise the objections. Mark Goulston, who's one of my uh, mentors, he wrote a couple of fabulous books, Talking to Crazy. But the best book, I've, I, I must have recommended this above all other books, is Just Listen. And uh, he makes the point that people want to be heard. They want to be felt. They want to be understood. And so what we need to do is we need to have people tell their story. It isn't really about us trying to convince them. In fact, that's the worst thing that you can do because the minute you try to convince, then you create resistance and you create objections. In the transparency cell, which I have to say, you, if you haven't read it, definitely get it. You, you make the point that transparency is better than perfection. And uh, you use the example of Amazon. And again, we, as social primates, go out and look for the evidence of other people. So one of the things that really flabbergasts me is the total lack of communication between marketing and actual live customers. So what the hell is going on there? Well, I think that uh, marketing now has a new requirement because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything we do buy and experience that part of their job needs to be, if I was a buyer, if I was a customer, what would I find if I was doing research on my own? curating that down and then helping create the messaging that sales uses to communicate this. You know, I, I, you probably know the supermodel Tyra Banks, uh, who knew that I would inject the wisdom of Tyra Banks into a sales conversation, but she coined the term flossom. And flossom is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome, right? And that starts with marketing. Marketing's responsibility is to create that flossom messaging because like one of the things that you can get in trouble with when you lead with objections and you don't quite have the, the moxie to do it is to walk into a prospect conversation and be like, hey, this is why we suck. Like, no, like take it easy. There is the, the right, like when I bring up Amazon or bring up online buying, there's two data points that really tell the whole story. 82% of us go to the negative reviews first right? We skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones, because we are, as a mechanism, as a brain, we are trying to predict what our experience is going to be like. And inherently, we know subconsciously that perfection is not reality. So if we can't get at that negative information, our brain resists. And here's that second data point, that when a review score on a product is between a four, two and a four, five, that's the optimal review score for conversion when buying online, meaning 4.2 sells better than a product that has nothing but five-star reviews. 
that absolutely equates to the human to human or B2B world. It's when we lead with our imperfections, again, 82% of us, our brain drives to wanting to predict, wanting that negative upfront. It's part of our being. When we lead with that, we disarm the buying brain's resistance to influence. And then when we're able to position our products as slightly like as imperfect, not sucky, because if they're sucky, you should be out of business anyway. When we do that, that combination together is magic for the buying brain. And that really has to start with marketing. Does that even hold true where you've got 5,000 five-star reviews? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's another element to it that has to do with the uh, the number of reviews too. But yeah, I mean, if you've got 5,000 five-star reviews, your your brain will read those and go, BS, you know, that's bullshit. Like that there's that your brain will look at that and say, I don't care if there's 30,000, they're buying those, they're manufacturing them, they're creating it. Like that, that's what our brain does. Like we need to go find, I just bought a new bed frame, like king size bed frame. And the site that I went to had a ton of five-star reviews. And I spent 15 minutes before I even realized I teach this shit that I was looking for the negative reviews because like I wanted to see what could go wrong. And there were some negative reviews in there and they spoke to me, right? They were things that told me that those things would never happen to me. So I'm cool. I'm still going to buy this. But that the point about 5,000 is there is a subconscious draw to what the cool kids are doing. For example, like if you and a buddy are walking down the street and there's two restaurants and you're hungry, there's one on the left, one on the right. The one on the left looks kind of empty. Like you don't really see much energy, but the one on the right, there's a bunch of people. Your brain goes, I'm going to that one, right? It's got nothing to do with the food or reviews or anything. We're drawn to where everybody is. So there is value in creating the impression that you're in demand, but still no amount of reviews will outweigh the fact that our buying brain is wanting to predict and knows that perfection is not reality. Excellent. Okay. So tell me this, what are the three or four questions that people should ask, but don't around transparency? Should ask, but don't. That's a good question. I'll flip it and tell you like, why, like, why do reps not do it? Might be actually, because it's something to ask yourself, I think might be more appropriate and more helpful is this idea that reps either don't know how to do it. They don't know how to frame their what things should I bring up? Like that, I think they struggle with that a little bit. Number two is they seek to add so much value before they reveal anything negative that they think that, hey, if there's so much value, when the customer finds out that we don't do that one thing that they really care about, we will have already outweighed that. Like we'll win that way. And it's that turns out. Place. Oh yeah, the old that the old school, like the T chart, right? Like here's yeah. all the reasons why you should and why you shouldn't. Um yeah. I and then it, thrown out of an office trying to use that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, when I, I started, there was, uh, you know, there was a little bit of that still around, but that was before the proliferation of reviews and feedback, right? That was before the ability for your buyers to easily reach out to their peers and understand who they are and get the truth. You know, at the time, you could get away with hiding your flaws and expect to get away with it. But in today's era, you can no longer do that. And that goes to the third reason why reps often don't do it is that they think the customer will never find out. And to your point, setting expectations is how customers are better able to predict, better able to buy. And I'll leave you with this second point here. Consensus selling is hard, right? We all know it. 
when we've got to sell to multiple buyers, that's really, really hard. Well, boohoo. Consensus buying is not only harder, but when your customers are all remote, consensus buying just got infinitely harder because your buyers can no longer just go out in the hallway and just be like, hey, Marcus, like, are you cool with this? Or the building consensus has just become a lot harder. I think it's incumbent upon us as the sales profession to remove friction and homework from the buying journey. Because if that reward is too hard to get to, our brain will deprioritize the value of that reward. And you're, if you, as our sales rep, you are not making that journey appear to be as you know, like stone-free as possible, or at least pointing out where the rocks are going to be on the bike path. You're actually doing a disservice to your buyer. I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to use transparency to make sure that you're staying high on the priority list by removing the homework that the buyer needs to do. A lot of the work I've done over the last few months has been around uh, being far more buyer-centric in selling. And I absolutely applaud what you said. Um, I challenge one thing. Um, I find that where the buyer doesn't have to do some heavy lifting uh, along the way, um, then often what happens is the salesperson ends up being run ragged doing free consultancy and um, it also diminishes the value. And I'm, I'm in. Uh, I'm remembering um, uh, chapter two of Tom Sawyer, um, where he's having to whitewash the fence, and um, he manages to get all the kids uh, to uh, do three coats of paint on this twenty-seven foot by nine foot fence, um, and he collects all of their swag. Um, so you know he gets a, a cat's eye and broken bottle end and all sorts of other stuff. And the piece that resonated is uh, a man or a boy who's prevented from getting what he wants or something wants it all the more. And certainly in my experience where we are trying to develop a consensus sale, you should give, I find that you should give the customer equal homework, but don't make it impossible for them. And that friction of having to go away and do it, it's the same thing in the recruitment process. If you make the recruitment process tough and challenging and demanding and difficult for uh, the candidate, they want the job all the more. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about it. But we, what we don't do is create pointless friction. And we absolutely do not misset expectations. Now, it's like managers. How often have you had or heard of managers who essentially give vague instruction as to what their expectation are and then punish the salesperson for uh, not meeting a vague expectation? Because the salesperson will typically do one of two things. They'll either paralyze and do nothing or they'll do what they think the boss wanted. And if you have a manager who is persecuting and punishes people for challenging or who punishes people for not knowing the answer intrinsically and they're afraid to ask, then that's on you. What I see far, far too often is that managers are not trained how to be good managers. They have no runway. They get thrown in at the deep end because they're a top performing rep. And you end up getting a manager who does what was done to them or they do what they think needs to be done, which is mostly beating the table, pounding their chest and uh, telling them do more. And one of the things that I have learned, uh, my coach uh, taught me this um, a couple of years back, and it was one of the most valuable lessons. More is not better. Better is better. 
And I don't think we spend enough time in reflection and we don't spend enough time inviting negative feedback. One of my mentors, a guy called Brian Solomon, taught me that at the outset of a sale, particularly where you've got a complex, uh, high ticket and high risk sale, um, that has, is likely to have a lasting impact on the buyers. What you need to do is you need to establish clear accountability criteria up front. And uh, you need to have them weight it and then rate you on a regular basis to make sure that um, you are uh, meeting the expectation. Um, and in doing that, what you do is you increase retention rates. Um, you're far more likely to get useful feedback that will help you to enhance your service or improve your product. But again, um, most salespeople, in my experience, do a drive-by shooting. They turn up and they spray you with features and benefits. They hope that you're going to buy. In the SaaS world, uh, what I see is many people who are in leadership are still of the mind of selling perpetual licenses and coming around every three years for a renewal. And they haven't really adapted. So again, in terms of transparency, how do you see leaders needing to adjust their behavior? And in that, in that same clusterfuck of utter morons, investors. Let's start with the homework thing, giving the buyers some homework. Uh, I'll just say that there's, I see if your homework that you're giving the buyer is, hey, I just pitched you, find out how I'm lying. That's terrible, right? Like <laughs> there, there's, there's, homework for the, there's homework for the buyer to do and that there's the right kind of homework for the buyer to do. I, I see three core areas where homework for the buyer is unnecessarily given to the buyer. And that's number one. I'm going to present my solutions as though they're a perfect five. You find out where I'm lying. That's number one. Number two is in the process. And this is a, uh, goes back to your question about leaders and looking for ways to remove friction from the buying journey is there's still companies that I talk to that have customers have to earn the right to get any information about your solutions or your pricing. Where customer who's got an excitement level of X, like let's say it's 10. Like right now, I go to your website and I fill out the lead form and like, hey, I'm interested in learning more about what you do. And then it takes you two days to respond. Now, by the time you've responded, it's here and it's a sales development rep that's calling and pounding me with qualification questions. Uh, like I've been put on the witness stand. And so at the end of that call, now my excitement level's here because SDR, you haven't given me anything except, hey, I'm going to connect you with an account executive who's going to do the next call. All right. So a week later, I get on the call with the account executive. My excitement level is now here. I've almost forgotten why I reached out in the first place. The account executive asks the same questions, does another discovery, and then says, hey, next step would be to do a demo. Like, let's schedule some time to do that. I'm now three calls in and I haven't seen anything. Fourth call happens, the rep gets on with the solution consultant or whatever and does a generic demo that doesn't use any of that call. Like That's unnecessary friction and unnecessary steps. That's not homework for the buyer. That's just annoying friction from the buying journey. As sellers, we need to look at each one of those steps and go, are these really necessary? And how do we optimize them for the buying brain and take advantage of the excitement that that buyer has for our solution that put in the lead form or even answered our cold call or our cold email and decided to spend their valuable time learning more about our solutions. Get to it. Stop looking at those things. The third area that I think is a total untapped opportunity to remove friction that is unnecessary is contracts. 
as a CRO, it's always, it always drove me nuts that like we would get all the way, we get the deal negotiated. The customer would say, yes, we're all excited. All right, here you go, lawyers, have at it. And then all of a sudden the next, you know, two to six weeks is lawyers beating each other up. And part of that is on us as sellers, as selling organizations, putting like hidden one-way terms in there and making our contracts read as this annoying thing that the lawyer, like lawyers are people too. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to remove friction from the contract process too. So leaders, reps, look at your processes, act like a buyer. What would annoy you? What are the opportunities to take advantage of the excitement level that that buyer has in you that's, again, trading their valuable time for you? How do we maximize that opportunity? There's there's homework and there's unnecessary friction. Those are two different things. That unnecessary friction, there are ways in every sales process I've seen to make that process easier on the buyer. Absolutely. And you should never be satisfied with your performance as a seller. There's always an opportunity to improve. So the challenge is how do we make sure that when we're engaging with buyers, we are uncovering their reasons why they will buy and not trying to foist our own drivel on them. Uh, I always make the um, equation that it's like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers and wondering why they're not cooing and uh, getting excited (laughs) by the 75th one. So look, Todd, this has just flown by. Tell me this, what what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I mean, there's a few things. I I think um, right now for me, like staring at that green dot on my uh, laptop all day long, you know, I still, I cherish the opportunity to be in front of people you know, Zoom fatigue is a real thing. The way that it works is when we're having a conversation with somebody, the way that our brain works is that our brain is constantly thinking, Marcus, are you right in front of me? Like how far away from you are, like, I, I can't figure like my brain can't figure that out. And as a result, it creates more, it requires more processing power on our brains to have genuine conversations. Combined with this fact that right now I'm looking at you which means that you're not sensing that I'm looking at you because I'm looking under you, right? And so there's this whole psychology around the connection that we're making with people over video. Um, I, that for me is, is a struggle. It's exhausting. And I'm hoping that we have the opportunity to get face-to-face as soon as possible. Hopefully this pandemic is over in sometime in 2021 and we can start getting together again. That That's just, that's a struggle that I have that, as much as I love being at home with my kids and family, I want to get out and see people again. I, I get that. Well, I, I, I do and I don't. I think I was made for the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> uh, since the 8th of March 2020, I've been in my conservatory. And I don't. I, for some reason, I don't suffer from Zoom fatigue. I'm on uh, anywhere between 8 and 12 hours a day. Um, but I think it may be down to the fact that I think I'm slightly deaf and I always look at people's mouths. So I'm not getting that uh, disconnect with the eyes. But I understand why so many people are. I think what's been really interesting is uh, how poorly many road warriors have adapted to it. And uh, you know, in all honesty, I, I haven't really seen any difference in my selling approach to how I've always sold. Well, certainly for the last uh, you know, couple of decades, because I think I'm genuinely curious and interested. And I want to have a conversation. I want to uncover, can I help? If I can't, I'm perfectly happy to say so. But yeah, it's, it, it's, I, I can imagine it has been tough for a lot of people. The beginning of March, 
I was booked out for 10 straight weeks, like speaking at conferences, doing workshops. And then within a week, it like my tumbleweed blew through my calendar, right? It just like all cleared out. I got in the fetal position and, you know, cried myself to sleep a couple of days in a row. Like what the hell just happened? But the good news is we can read minds during times of uncertainty. Like we talked a little bit about brain science, but when we can't predict what's out ahead of us, our survival mechanism kicks in, you know, consciously and subconsciously. It's part of the reason why everybody ran to the the store and bought up all the toilet paper is that we're trying to extend our runway. We're trying to reduce costs where we can to make sure that our runway, our extension of runway includes our, our resources and our dollars. And we're trying to reduce risk, right? And so when you're thinking about your positioning and your approaches from a sales perspective, all of your buyers are thinking that way. They continue to be thinking that way. I mean, you know, that this uh, episode will be out in December and I don't think there's one of us that can accurately predict what even Q1 of 2021 is going to look like. And as a result, we're still in this period of uncertainty. And that's hard on everybody. It's hard on me. But the good news is as sales professionals, you can predict it. My uh, emphatic statement is that, and you hopefully have done this already, but if the messaging that you're using, you created pre-pandemic, my suggestion is to do a select all delete and then get in a room and decide who are you going to be in 2021 and start over with your messaging because your solutions have different meanings now in the midst of what we're still dealing with than they did when we were in an upswing and we were all running around happy and hanging out together. So that was helpful to me and helpful to the organizations that I've been advising and teaching and and hopefully can be helpful to somebody who's listening to this as well. Excellent. My experience with my calendar just filled up. It was blissful. I don't think I've had more than 15 minutes a day to myself. Uh, Occasionally I have to go off to pee. Um, <laughs> yeah, mine definitely came back. Um, it was just, I had a two week period where it was just like gone and then I had to shift. And there's some people that have shifted quickly and well, I think I've done pretty well. My schedule is insane right now through beginning of sales kickoff seasons coming up right after the beginning of the year. And I'm just writing proposals and getting ready for that madness, but it'll be all be virtual. But yeah, it took a little while and there's still reps out there and leaders that are still struggling with this. We should have a conversation offline about not writing proposals, but that's another conversation entirely. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise your 23-year-old idiot self. What choice bit of advice would you give Todd at age 23? You know he would have probably ignored, but would have benefited from greatly. Well, I mean, the easy answer would be transparency, right? Like, you know, one of my first sales jobs was, was with SAP. And they literally, back in the 90s when I was selling there, said that the answer is always yes. Customer asks if we do something, the answer is always yes. And back then, you couldn't find out anyway. And we did pretty darn well back then. But obviously, transparency is the the obvious answer. Then embracing transparency, that there's no magic bullet. There's no magic elixir to all that ails sales. But the brain science, the data, the research, and the practical application are telling me that transparency is close to it as possible. And I wish I would have understood and embraced that a lot earlier. So that's number one. Number two, though, is I wish that earlier I would have recognized that my passion was for teaching and for researching and for speaking and helping people be better at what they do. I spent a lot of time chasing money. The first 
few years of my career was always like, you're going to pay me what? All right, I'll do it. And it was digging holes in the backyard, right? It was like horrible stuff that made me miserable. And yeah, I was, I did pretty well, but I didn't find true joy until I shifted. I took a couple of big risks selling everything to buy a sales training company. And then later leaving my CRO role with the fastest growing tech company in all of Chicago to go write a book like an idiot. But those risks are things that have hugely paid off for me. And in some ways, I wish I would have recognized that a little bit earlier. Excellent. You should definitely check out a guy called Dr. Phil with two L's, McGowan. He's just completed his PhD. He is genuinely a doctor of sales. And out of his PhD, he managed to get four research papers. And it's some of the best research on what actually causes people to buy, why salespeople prevent buyers from buying uh, around sales management. Uh, Really interesting stuff. What books, podcasts, um, videos would you recommend people pay attention to? Obviously, The Transparency Sale by Todd Capone. But uh, give me uh, two or three others that you think are really relevant to today's environment. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I have been a student of books my whole career, but I found about three years ago that I like to come to my own conclusion. And so I literally read research every day. Like I've got a, uh, access to about 300 research journals and I read those every day. And sometimes they're crazy things like the impact of child rearing behaviors in Japanese parents. Todd, why the hell would you read that? Well, it actually, when you read it from the lens of sales leadership, it actually, like when you think about just getting out of your bubble, like, you know, LinkedIn, for example, is a massive echo chamber. Like we're all sharing the same ideas that like this book, 1916, The Art and Science of Selling. It smells fantastic. Like it is amazing. I could literally pick out articles from here or chapters, drop them in the LinkedIn and people would have no idea that they're 104 years old, Right. And so for me, I just keep seeing the same recycled stuff in LinkedIn. I see it a lot in the books that I read. And so I personally read a lot of research and then get outside of my bubble and listen to podcasts like the Brainfluence podcast. This guy named Roger Dooley, his podcast is really, really smart. And it's all about neuromarketing. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that one. I listen to that one uh, constantly. And then The other thing that I do is if I get stuck on a topic or start thinking about something, I just go to Spotify and look up podcasts and I'm listening to random ones all the time. It's a long way of saying my advice is get outside of the echo chamber. You'd be amazed at the things that you can find and learn about that will help you in your sales, your sales leadership. If you just start to think like, you know, neuromarketing, do some other research, just read some random things and listen to random things. It fulfills me. It helps me come to my own conclusions. It's what's made me, I think, kind of worth listening to. And uh, maybe it's an opportunity for others to uh, kind of inject that same behavior too. Excellent. Todd, how can people get a hold of you? Well, it's Todd Capone. I'm really hard not to find, annoyingly so. Uh, So like, you know, use the old Google machine. But I, I, transparencysale.com, I have a ton of resources there. On the homepage, lists out like the 10 most popular articles just filled with tips. There's videos, 
you can get a hold of me there. And then I do share some of my nonsense on LinkedIn too. So if you want to follow or connect with me, just let me know you heard me here because uh, LinkedIn has become a noisy mess as well. And uh, I will accept if you tell me that you heard me on this podcast. Excellent. Todd Capone, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. That was a blast. I, my face hurts from smiling. So thanks for having me on. Excellent. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, helpful, then please like, comment, and share, and don't forget to subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then get in touch. And you can contact me through either email, marcus at laughs-last.com, or via LinkedIn through direct message. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.